From the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. In this episode, a Notre Dame scientist is part of a group that will examine previously sealed lunar samples, what the findings may hold for the future of space exploration. And for 50 years, the School of Architecture has been sending students to Rome for their third year of the program, why the Eternal City is still the most important place for studying architecture. It gives us data point from which we can build. And because of the orbital data sets we've had since Apollo, we now know where to go on the surface to explore other regions. And it's a, it's a whole new set of samples. So I'm really excited about this. We've never seen them before. Yeah, they were collected in 72, but we've never seen them before. These are new samples. Clive Neal is a professor of civil engineering and earth sciences. He specializes in the moon and lunar geology. The samples are important because they will give us potentially our only look at unadulterated solar wind volatiles in the regolith. And that, what does that mean? Well, you've got the moon, it's in a vacuum. So the sun continually bombards it. When the sun continually bombards it, there are particles, there are atoms, carbon, nitrogen, uh, helium, hydrogen. They're hitting and being, you know, ad adhering to the regolith. It's, it's not as if it's part of a mineral, it's just on the surface. So if, when, when the astronauts are up there, you move the regolith around and you bring it back and you launch it and then you come in through entry, it's all this jiggling, those, reg those, those volatiles, most of them are going to be lost. So the sample we're looking at um, from uh, Station 3 Apollo 17 was collected on the moon in a vacuum tube. As soon as it was brought back, it was put. That tube was put in another vacuum tube. So we think that we've got our first look at solar wind, the potential of solar wind volatiles in terms of resource. So that gives us a, a quantifiable data point on that. Can we use these to support human life on the moon um, and uh, create, you know, life support consumables, create rocket fuel, create radiation protection, and then use the regolith as a as a building material. So you're basically living off the land. Give me a little bit of the sense of history here. It feels like after the Apollo missions, the moon was almost like a box that was checked. <laughs> you know, we've been there. Now, what's the next yep. frontier? Yep. Uh, and, and now maybe the, the focus is coming, coming back. If we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it. Um, the vice president's speech a week or so ago was touting competition with the Chinese now. 50 years ago, one small step for man became one giant leap for mankind. But now's come the time for us to make the next giant leap and return American astronauts to the moon, establish a permanent base there, and develop the technologies to take American astronauts to Mars and beyond. That's the next giant leap. For getting the high ground and being there first, and um, this is what Apollo was. Let's beat the Soviets. And after Apollo 11, we've beaten the Soviets. Now what? So the question comes, a fundamental question. Why are we going to the moon? And that's the fundamental question. And I keep asking people at NASA, why are we going to the moon? And the way I look at it is to bring the moon into our economic sphere of influence. It's to create a new economy. I want students from Notre Dame, when I tell them or ask them, what are you going to do after Notre Dame? And they're going to say to me, I'm going to go work on the moon. And it's not science fiction. Science fact, because we can create industry that will use the resources and the location um, to create good, high-paying technical jobs through these private companies, which NASA is now fostering. If we look at Apollo, it was a competition, 
and we won. That was the goal. Well, now what? So let's fast forward. Why are we going back to the moon now? I've heard that it's to go back to stay. Mm. And have permanent presence to build a base so that we can learn how to live and work successfully off planet close by so that we can successfully go to go to Mars and bring humans back. And it's not just a flags and footprints thing. We keep going. We keep going back and forth. Um, I don't think I'll be alive to see the first humans on Mars. I think we've wasted too much time in the, in the last 50 years not developing capabilities to do that. This, this let's go to Mars direct, I think it's ridiculous. Mm. I mean, it's, it's great PR. I know people are highly passionate about it. We can do this and they just want to see it in their lifetime. I said, let's, let's set the scene. Our job is to set the scene so our, maybe our kids or our grandkids or our great-grandkids get to see it everybody has their apollo moment because this generation and generations before them don't have an apollo moment like i do and only just <laughs> but uh, but i remember watching um, um buzz Aldrin and neil armstrong walk on the surface of the moon i was eight years old um and it, my dad got me up at four in the morning in england to watch it so we we have to have a long-term vision and presidential terms are not long enough it should be a bipartisan destination not the moon but space because it 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 gives back to the country and that's what people miss if it wasn't for apollo we wouldn't have cell phones so i think we've got to have a long-term vision and it has to be cooperation not competition cooperation with china with cooperation with international partners i mean it can be china it can be europeans it can be japan it can be india it can be um, saudi arabia we, why did we go to the moon we went for all mankind when we went went there for apollo well except the chinese i don't think so it seems like the the type of collaboration you're describing would have been unheard of in the apollo era yeah. but now where we have the international space station and mm-hmm. maybe others were closer to it Mm-hmm. I remember there was a there was a, um, a Soviet US cooperation with Skylab and the Mir space station, mm-hmm. um, and that led to the International Space Station. So maybe those sorts of things could be used to um, foster a new paradigm you know, on the moon. You talked about uh, bringing the moon into our economic sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that to me a little bit more? What, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? What it looks like, it needs a commitment, at least from this nation, to say we're going to go there permanently. We're going to have humans up there all the time, and we're going to bring them back and forth. We're going to resupply. But then we're, going, we're also going to develop the resources that are up there to enable that and um, go beyond to create rocket fuel. So if you do that, then NASA can't do everything. NASA needs to be once they've created this infrastructure with with private uh, help, they need to lease it. And then they need to use their money to go on to Mars using the products that they've got from the moon to enable them to do that. That's what I mean by bringing, bringing the moon into our economic sphere of influence because it's very important to create jobs. Return on investment. If we're going to have a space program, we've got to show the value back to regular folks. And that demands permanence on the moon in order to fully utilize it. So it's a combination of using it as a refueling depot um, mm-hmm. to reach the ultimate destination, wherever that may be, but also yep. figuring out 
what's there. Yeah. Because we don't know yet. Right. And that's kind of where this samples thing comes okay, the back. samples thing comes in. The samples tell us a lot. Um, the the other thing is to is prospecting on the surface of the moon, robotic prospectors, rovers that can actually go across a particular area we've noted from orbit and tell us, well, how deep is that? What's the depth of the deposit? Is it a layer? Is it you know mixed in with the regolith? Um, yeah, what else is in there? Mm. Is there any harmful? toxins that need to be refined uh, then we do tech demos to see whether we can do that so these samples represent a, you know I, I wouldn't say the first step but certainly a second step we use the return samples to look at in situ resource utilization you know we've proven that we can create water out of regolith as long as it's been exposed to the sun um, you know we've proven that we can make concrete out of regolith did that with some Apollo 16 so we can use it as a building material the regolith can be used as a building material but it has to be permanence on the moon will fully develop that economy if we we're just doing sortie missions all over the place. It could cancel at any time. Yeah. So, but again, that's the return on investment. So it allows it to be a long-term program uh, through Congress. And that's where, and, and you alluded to this already, uh, the eight-year maximum term for mm-hmm. U.S. president. We're talking about things that are beyond eight years at a time. Oh, yeah. We're talking multi-decades. Mm. So, uh, you know, it was E.D. Bernice Johnson, who's chair of the House Space Committee. I think it's the House. I can never get there. Still getting used to that. <laughs> um, but she says, you know, we're very skeptical because NASA doesn't have a plan. They've been given an edict, but they don't have a plan. And that's something that when I chaired the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group, we spent four years developing a roadmap for permanence Mm. on the moon. And it was very different from a typical political roadmap because there were no timelines. Just early, middle, late. Right. And that was what it was. So this needs to happen first. This needs second, third. No Uh, consideration to November when elections are around. Nope. Because if you do that, and this is why, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that... Vice President Pence's 2024 deadline is doable, but you do set yourself up for failure. If you were to encapsulate for for someone the importance of the moon to the future of space exploration, someone who has in their mind, you know, curiosity and opportunity, Mm -hmm. the Mars Mm -hmm. rovers, um, what would you say? I'd say the moon is the enabling asset that we have. Um, It enables so much more because um, not for robotics, and we're doing a great job with robotics, with uh, Curiosity and Mars 2020, although both over budget, it's expensive. To do it with humans is even more expensive. But we've got a, we've got a laboratory in our own back garden to learn how to do that. It's only three days away versus six months best. Mm-hmm. That's the quickest weekend out there. So why don't we learn how to do things properly so we can do it sustainably and not just do flags and footprints, one and done. And home. Why, why not? Maybe Elon Musk has got the right idea. We can go and we can terraform it. We can go up to Mars and we can live on it. We can, maybe. But it starts with not just going once. So let's learn from Apollo. And not, we went six times. Tried for a seventh, but Apollo 13 was a bit of a bummer on that mm. one. But, <laughs> but let's keep it going. What happens if we didn't stop? Where would we be now? Probably be on Mars. If you want this to be a multi-decadal program, you've got to show why it should be in terms of the return on investment. So we're creating a new sector of the economy. 
right? That's what NASA sh- NASA's doing. This is this is the, your investment in our future through your taxpayer dollars. Mm. Um, MIT did a study on the on the return on investment from Apollo, and it far is three times what the cost was for Apollo um, because of the the spinoffs and the and the. The new directions of research. We we can't tell what they'll be right now, but we know through experience, it does happen. So maybe we can make it a bipartisan destination. Yeah, that way because return on investment becomes key. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a businessman. I'm a geologist, but I get it. But the whole point of this is is to keep humans out, move human humanity out into the solar system, mm-hmm. um, because we have to bring Mars into our economic sphere of influence. Mm. Not in my lifetime, but that's the goal. In what generation do you think then? So not in our lifetime, but uh, what generation do you think this, let's just say that things move? And I think my grandkids gonna... will see it. Think so? Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I, think, I think it's if, if we maintain the course and we don't faff around like we've done for the last <laughs> however many years or decades, which is depressing, <laughs> um, you know, if, if we maintain the course that this is, this is a national priority and it doesn't matter who, what, what party is in power, but this is a national priority because it gives, brings wealth back to the country, basically. Um, then that's what China is aiming for that. Mm. They're getting ready to set up their research base on the moon. So they have, they have three robotic landers to the South Pole coming up in the next six years. So, mm. yeah, they're, they're, that's what they, that's, that's, they've made it very clear. Mm. And why are they doing it? Because this brings wealth back to our country. And that's a communist regime. <laughs> Bizarre, isn't it? Clive Neal, thank you very much. All right, thank you. the most important of Rome's seven hills, you find Campidoglio. It's a square designed by Michelangelo on a site where the famed Roman Senate would convene. And it still has some political significance today. Rome's city hall is located here. It's also where you'll find throngs of tourists en route between the altar of the Fatherland Monument and the Roman Forum. And about midway through the fall semester, it's here where you'll find Notre Dame architecture students in Professor Richard Piccolo's watercolor graphics class. Today's assignment is deceptively difficult. Find a seat and draw the three buildings in front of you. The monument, a basilica, and a museum. From a certain perspective, they look very close together, but as any of the passing tourists who scaled the long Cordonata stairs can tell you, they're not. One of the most common errors For the last 50 years, Notre Dame has sent its third-year architecture students to the Eternal City. The Rome Studies program is celebrating its golden anniversary this month. Five decades of Irish archies, as they're called, spending a year here, learning the discipline of architecture as only Rome can teach it. Not bad for a program that started rather inauspiciously. Here's School of Architecture Dean Michael Lacutis. So 50 years ago, Frank Montana started this program as a, initially not as a required program of study, but you bring 15 students for a few weeks, and then you got the idea that somehow 
this should be a permanent uh, fixture of the school. So he was walking down the street near, near here, and I saw a sign on, on the window of the uh, building, or the wall of the building. And uh, it had a real estate agent's phone number, so he called it. Real estate agent came trotting out, showed him the building, said, great, I'll take it. He shows up back on campus about a few weeks later and says to Father Ted and Father Ned, who had the purses, hey, Father Ted, Father Ned, guess what I just did? I bought us a new building. And Father looked at him with shock and said, you can't do that, Frank. Said, of course you can. Here are the papers. They're all signed and everything. So I don't know if that's an urban myth, but that's certainly the, the folklore that I learned. When we began, we were not a school. We were the Department of Architecture and the College of Engineering when Professor Montana created the Rome program. That's Rome Studies Program Academic Director, Father Richard Belline. His perspective is unique. He was a student in the program in the 1970s and is only now returning to Rome in his new role. It's just, and it's proven itself in every situation. You want to teach architecture this way, Rome will work, and whatever this way is. Rome works because of an interesting paradox. It's a city that in many ways is singular in the world, yet the lessons to be learned here can be transferred almost anywhere. There are 20 centuries of history layered on top of and next to each other in Rome, and you experience all of them on any given walk through these cobblestone streets. And by the way, those cobblestones are emblematic of one of the many lessons you learn here, according to Dean Lacutis. Well, the other great thing about Rome, and most tourists probably wouldn't understand immediately, is it's a modern city. They are wired to the hilt with technology. And that's not what makes it modern. What makes it modern is that they have figured out how to make a sustainable city early on. Rome never throws anything away. It's a city where you, the whole culture of conservation and investment can be seen. Our cities in America and largely in Europe, other cities, you know, the, the suburbs, uh, are all about disposable goods. It's all about consumption and waste. Wrong is not. And that makes it modern because we can learn something from the city. These cobblestones get recycled. Every time you tear out the pavement, take out the cobblestones, and you put them back in. They don't go to a landfill. You know, the buildings, they get re retrofitted, refitted, adapted, adapted. Old people, young people, everybody walks the same street. So it's an inclusive city. It's a resilient city. It's a sustainable city. And above all, it's a beautiful city. And one that hasn't lost its capacity to surprise. We caught up with one student, Doha Morkid, as she was finishing up her midterm review at the Rome Global Gateway, where the Rome Studies program is based. She talked about how she stumbled upon a famous Rome landmark almost by accident. The Pantheon, I came up it and I didn't want I didn't want to visit it. I was just I was walking and I found myself there. How I found myself there was through that sequence. There was like there was a piazza that was not big, it was a small piazza. And then there was something dragging me into the space. There was a niche in front of me. I followed the path, then there's like a hinge. Then I turned and then that was my, I found myself in front of the Pantheon. And living that experience makes you wanna design something that is similar, that they give people that experience. If you're walking through that space, you wanna live the same experience and, and reach to a space that we're like, 
wow, this is a magical moment. I want to live this experience. So we had the sequence from grand ceremonial spaces to utilitarian spaces, and they become your everyday back and uh, your everyday life back and forth from one kind of space to the other. And I think that helps them understand hierarchy of spaces. It helps them understand how one space can benefit from the presence of another. Uh, the articulation of detail is harmonious with the articulation of spaces. So in the stoa and on the terraces, the detailing is much more elegant and refined than it would be in the studio space. So there's that kind of living day, as we do here in Rome, we live day to day with subtle lessons that until somebody points them out to you, you might not notice. But once they point them out, oh, that's, that's true. So I think it'll, it'll really help with this, it's really excellent array of, of detail and spaces that run the, run the range from the very monumental to the very mundane in a harmonious way. Or as Dean Lacutis might put it, students here learn about what makes a city a city. And along the way, maybe something about themselves. It's not just a pedagogical experience that is so valuable in Rome. I think the kids, when they come here, and we recognize this as educators, they grow up. I, I tease their parents when they first come as first-year students. I say, you will see your kids going off to Rome as boys and girls, and they come back as men and women. Because they're on their own. They're, they have to fend for themselves. They're together. They learn more about each other than they want. Uh, but that's part of maturing. That's part of growing up. At Rome's Trevi Fountain, the saying goes that if you stand with your back to the water and throw a coin from your right hand over your left shoulder, you'll return to Rome one day. Who knows whether Frank Montana performed that ritual 50 years ago, but the program he founded has had an eternal draw all the same. Uh, referred to Rome as the eternal city, maybe you could say, well, it also has eternal uh, impact or eternal, like a, a carrying forward of lessons that are here that will improve American cities. Not that we're gonna to try to transplant Rome to the US or to Guatemala to wherever else our, our graduates uh, are working, but that the, the pattern of thinking, the way of understanding buildings and their urban spaces um, is very, very valuable to not only our students for their personal enrichment, but to their profession as a means of cultural enrichment. Read more about the 50th anniversary of the Rome Studies program on nd.edu. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications.